This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9. Good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run, 6 a.m. on Friday, the 24th of June. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Wong Shaoning, taking you through the last workday of the week. Yay, we made it to Friday, albeit a very wet Friday. So for those who are driving, please, please, please stay safe on the roads because even Shazana had a bit of a harrowing experience this morning, right? It was a little bit harrowing. Uh, it has been raining very heavily this morning and there are some parts of the LDP in Puchong that are flooded at the moment. So for those of you coming, uh, going up to work from Puchong, do watch out. Do prepare yourselves for possible snarls this morning. I think it's going to be a rough morning for a lot of us out there. Yeah, I think the Met Department has warned that these heavy showers are going to continue to the end of the year, which is still quite a long time away. So just be careful on the roads, please. Stay, stay safe, drive safe and uh, tune in to us this morning because we have a lot of conversations lined up today uh, at 7.15. If you remember shouting yesterday, we were discussing mm. the situation in Sri Lanka and hearing from our policy analyst, um, Chulani Atanayaka, on just how difficult a situation it is in Sri Lanka at the moment. Um, and we know that this is a result of years of government mismanagement. So what are the warning signs that we as a country can take from Sri Lanka's situation to avoid a similar fate. So we're going to speak to business writer P. Gunasegaram about the indicators and how he sees parallels or whether he even sees parallels between our two countries. Yeah, I think that's going to be a very interesting conversation. And then at 7.30, we're going to be talking about oil prices. Uh, currently, just barely below 110 US dollars per barrel. Uh, but what does this mean for Asian uh, Pacific refineries? Horace Chan of Bloomberg Intelligence tells us. So because how to say the high prices at the pump aren't directly, I mean, yes, you see high crude oil prices, there will be high prices at the pump, but there are mm. also processes in between that are leading to the high prices we're seeing now around the or world. Or bottlenecks at these, uh, at these refineries, right? So we'll find out more. More on that at 7.30. Then later on at 7.45, we were talking also yesterday about the ultimatum by Pakatan Harapan for a government plan to deal with the cost of living. It certainly had me scratching my head a little bit. So we're going to be speaking to political analyst Dr. James Chin on what he sees the pH strategy to be as we run in as we run up to GE15. And at 8.45, we're gonna find out from the horse's mouth exactly, exactly uh, what the uh, opposition strategy is when it comes to cost of living and also maybe what their plans are for GE15 with PH and PKR representative Fami Fazil, who's of course the MP for Lumba Pantai. We're gonna have all this and more on the morning run today, so stay with us, BFM 89.9. The Sapphires with Who Do You Love? And before that, you heard Led Zeppelin with Tangerine. The Malay translation of that song would be Limau. Um, it's not as nice to say as the title of a song than Tangerine. But yes, I'm Shazana Mokhtar. I'm with Wong Xiaoning. We're The Morning Run. We're taking you all the way up to 10 a.m. today. 6.08, 6.09 now on Friday, the 24th of June. And the first story that we're looking at uh, was a headline that caught my eye yesterday regarding le the recent data from the Malaysian insolvency department. So they released statistics on bankruptcy 
And there are data points that indicate a rather worrying lack of financial literacy in society. So nearly 60% of the 46,000 Malaysians who declared bankruptcy from 2018 to May of this year, so that's about a four-year period, 60% of them were aged between 25 and 44. And nearly 42% of those who declared bankruptcy during this period also cited personal loans as a factor leading to bankruptcy. So these are... I mean, I find it quite interesting, these data mm. points. And I want to stay on the outset that bankruptcy isn't a death sentence. No, it's not at and all. Sometimes you can do everything right and still find yourself in the deep red. Yes. But I do think that for many cases, the distressing situation can be avoided with prudent financial management. Yeah, and even if you are in that dire situation, you can always repair it. Okay, I'll put it, I'll, I'll call it a repair situation because it's, and you, you do need to seek help. The first thing you should always do if you find yourself in that position is to actually reach out to what is the Credit Counseling and Debt Management Agency, otherwise known as AKPK. Their whole purpose is to actually help the public deal with issues like this. And, you know, there's... Okay, so we've heard the bad statistics. Let's hear the good statistics. The good statistics is out of all those who have gone to AKPK... 85% of them managed to settle their debts and then gain, re, regain control of their finances. Because the point here is, once unfortunately you've been declared bankrupt, um, there is some curtailment in terms of your ability to do some things. One of which is actually you can't travel anymore. Sometimes you can't even have a bank account. Um, but you want to actually regain back that financial independence. So AKPK sets out a plan for you, a very detailed plan. And if you follow it, you'll get back that financial health. So that's what I mean by it's it's not like what you say, a dead-end path, right? But I let's go back to the topic of why do people get into this position in the first place? And sometimes... Let's, let's be honest, sometimes a bit of, you know, luck. It's luck factor. But if we look back to the roots of it, I wonder whether it's because we as Malaysians aren't very good in terms of what, in terms of financial literacy. And if we did teach that, would these statistics be much better? Think about it. When was, well, I guess in your personal experience, Shawning, when did you first come across, I suppose, the concept of financial literacy? Yeah? How did you learn or where did you learn money management from? When my father asked me to go to Maybank and I got my first Maybank tabung, which looked like a little tiger, I can still remember what colour, yellow and it had like bad black stripes. And he goes like, okay, your pocket money, okay, albeit this is in the 1980s, right, was 50 cents. And he says, ideally, you shouldn't spend all of that 50 cents. If you actually kept some of it, maybe by the end of the year, you would have some money. I actually never, ever got to see any of that money I saved in that tabung. It went straight to the bank. But that was the very first lessons I had in uh, for financial literacy, which is always put something aside for the rainy day, right? right. But if you didn't have parents to teach you that, where would you learn it from, actually? I mean, and savings is like that foundational aspect of financial literacy. But then you, when you grow up, you realise that there are things like interest rates, like dividends. Investments. If you, if you invest in stocks. Yeah, uh, you inflation, know? which eats away at your savings. Loans. Um, all these things that don't really come into the picture until... Perhaps you're much older mm. and if you happen to find yourself in that situation, it's never as easy as just money in, putting aside. I mean, it can be as easy as that. It starts with that. I think everybody starts with that, right? Whether you're a four-year-old, a five-year-old, six-year-old, typically it starts with that. And then you just build on in terms of adding your financial knowledge. And it's also as you get older, I mean, really, 
you don't really need to think about a loan till you actually, you know, perhaps get your first paycheck because you shouldn't be taking a loan if you don't have a paycheck. So you evolve and you learn along the way. But you're right. We never learn this in school. There's we no don't book, learn right? We le- I mean, we may have, for example, a day where it's a, a, a usahawan, hari usahawan, or like mm. an entrepreneur day where we're allowed to set up stalls and sell food, for example, and earn money. And that it, from my recollection, that is the extent of how to manage finances that I had in school. But that's from a business perspective. Correct. There's a difference, right? This is a personal perspective. So, I mean, it should be maybe considered part of the curriculum, um, you know. Introduce it at a younger age so that uh, that knowledge can carry with them to when they're an adult. But even if you're an adult now and you're still only starting to learn about personal finance, that's a great thing. It's never too late. Never too late to take charge of your finances. And if you want to learn more about, um, if you want to hear more about this issue or, or hear from APK, AKPK themselves on bankruptcy and what to do if you find yourself in this process, our financial show, Personal Finance Show, Ring It and Sense covers this. Uh, there's a host of catalog podcasts that you can look up. Do look this up on our BFM app. Or tell us what you think. How old were you when you first realized the value of money? What financial uh, personal finance tips do you still carry with you to this day? WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. 6.14 in the morning, we're heading into some messages. And when we come back, we're going to discuss what makes a city livable. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. That was Arcade Fire with Ready to Start. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Wong Xiaoning. You may be ready to start your weekend. It is Friday, the 24th of June. But remember, we still have the workday ahead of us and it is raining outside. For those, for So for those of you commuting to work, just prepare yourself mentally for what could be a little bit of an arduous journey this morning. I'm anticipating a lot of traffic jams out there given the uh, rain that's coming down. Yeah, you might have a mini banjir that's preventing you from starting your day in a proper manner. Uh, but we have this rather interesting, I think, very relevant uh, topic this morning when we talk about the floods, whether we are living in a livable city, that's exactly the topic. And it's because the economists, the EIU actually, have come up with their annual report in terms of what are the most livable cities. That's right. Do you want to guess which city came out on top, Shawning? It ain't us. It ain't us. <laughs> that's all I need to know, okay? Malaysia is not on top, of the, not even in top 10. Well, I'll give a hint to um, uh, our listeners who the top city is. Uh, my, my hint will be Billy Joel uh, because he has a song titled Vienna. I was thinking more schnitzer. Oh, schnitzel. Yeah, you could, I suppose. I'd or say- black forest cake. <laughs> I'm food driven rather than anything That's else. That's right. Well, my pop culture mind goes to Billy Joel in that song he sings, Vienna Waits for You. And indeed, Vienna being the most livable city out of 173 countries in 2022, uh, I guess it is a, a considered a dream city for those who are looking for a, the best quality of life, maybe. Okay, so let's give some um, the, the, the indicators that the economy or the EIU looks at to determine what is the best city, right? Because there must be some context. So I think they look at stability, healthcare, culture and environment, education and infrastructure. And as a result, uh, Vienna scores like 100, you know, most everything, except for culture and environment. Uh, but otherwise, it's a fantastic score. And if I, I've been to Vienna and I would say it is, it is a very, very nice city. But is it the best and you know, so there's always some subjective element. I they try so. to be objective as in having this scorecard, but 
who does the scoring, right? Exactly. And uh, I guess it's important to also keep in mind that these kinds of surveys, they're usually, um, they're, they measure expatriate living, yeah? And they're used by companies and businesses to also gauge how much allowance to give to their staff who are posted to these cities. So in that sense, I, I, would, take, I would take these kinds of rankings with a pinch of salt, you know, and, uh, and it doesn't discount the city that you live in and the mm. things that you love about living in a particular city, which uh, can come in a myriad of different factors. Yeah. But I think these surveys are useful, let's say from a Kuala Lumpur perspective in terms of how we can improve to make our city better, all right? So for sure, let's look at infrastructure. Um, Because of the rain today, some of you won't be able to go to work or the roads will be flooded. Now, that already means that our infrastructure score isn't great. Our public transport, we don't need to remind everyone there are questions about last mile connectivity. Not the best, right? Yay, we get free rides for a month. But can everyone partake in those free rides? Yeah, free rides. So infrastructure also has to be connected, has to be reliable. There cannot be long queues at the LRT station or the MRT station. Then we do we have a, lot, a low score. So I know we'll never be in the top 10. Then we come to education. We talked about this extensively, extensively on the breakfast grill, whether even across the station as to the state of our education. And we know we're not going to get to 100. The disparity has, or the I suppose... The COVID-19 has really shined a light in terms of the inequality within the education system. So, so many issues there, right? But I think these surveys are useful in that. How can we then improve? How can we get to a better standard is how we should look at it. Mm. And um, I guess one of the curious elements of um, a livable city uh, is the culture and environment element. I think everyone likes to look at that as well in terms of um, the things that you can do in your social time in that particular city. Is it just a place of work or is it also a place where you can kick back and relax Mm. and enjoy the sights and enjoy the culture? Um, I I noticed that on that front, uh, even even the cities in the top 10 don't always hit that 100% mark. So let's talk about the... The worst, right? I mean, and I feel for the people in this city. So the the worst on this list is Damascus and Syria at 172, they rank. And when you look at their index, they're 30.7 versus, of course, Vienna, which is at 100. And you can see the reasons why healthcare is like scores very low, culture environment is very low, education is very low, infrastructure is very low. So basically, when you have a city that has been torn by war, I think that then inevitably the score will be low. But how do you then improve these cities along the way? It seems like one key thing is stability. And that's another uh, indicator that the uh, economist uses. Uh, so only if there is there some measure of stability, then you can have some progress in terms of your living conditions and also how society functions. Absolutely. Tell us what you think. What uh, factors rank? What factors do you take into account in determining whether a city is livable or not? Do you have a favorite livable city? You can WhatsApp us zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine or tweet us at BFM Radio six twenty six in the morning. We're heading into the six thirty a.m. news bulletin. We'll come back after that with a look at global headlines. Here's Don Henley with Boys of Summer to take you to the news. BFM eighty nine point nine. The Cardigans with Love Fool. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning. 6.39 in the morning on Friday, the 24th of June. Earlier, we were talking about what makes a livable city. We do have some WhatsApp messages coming in on this. What have we had? Uh, Anonymous said food. 
We, there was no, no, there wasn't that indicator in the EIU's survey, right? There wasn't, there was like stability, healthcare, education, infrastructure, culture. Maybe food comes out of culture. Perhaps, uh, mm. but uh, our commentator said, food, no city can beat KL when it comes to food. You're definitely a love fool for KL food. And I can't blame you. I, I think we have great food as well. Yeah, despite, I think recently there was a survey where we were omitted. Oh, that's right. We were quite uh, displeased about that, weren't we? Well, yeah, I think we, like, were, we, were, we were ranked fairly low in that list. I think Singapore was on top and there was, of course, people up in arms. What are you talking about? Uh, but okay, I would say yes. Food is one of the joys of KL. One of the major joys. Albeit food has gone up in price a lot. That's true. But still, it's one of the greatest joys because we live in this multiracial, multicultural uh, city, society. And so you can get whatever you want at any time of the day. And speaking of multicultural, multiracial, multi-society, let's uh, cast our eyes around the world for the top headlines this morning. I think on most of the business uh, pages, you see the headline uh, regarding the EU granting Ukraine and Moldova candidate member status. So they have um, said that Ukraine and Moldova will begin the process of becoming EU members. They're not EU members yet, but they are on that track to achieve uh, EU member status. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't bank on them becoming members anytime soon, yeah. though. I think the last member that came in was Croatia. It took them nine years between becoming a candidate and actually becoming a full member. So there's still a long way ahead. Yeah, because the criteria to actually be a member is not an easy criteria to meet, right? Because you've got to have political stability. You have to have certain conditions when it comes to your economy. Um, it needs to have certain standards when it comes to human rights, uh, the judiciary system. So it, it's, it's not an easy entry, but it's a symbolic move. I think that's what's the key takeaway of this, right? And it does show that Ukraine is detaching itself firmly away from the Russian side of influence, uh, really putting their case, putting their uh, their eggs with the EU. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens moving forward from here. What are the headlines have caught your eye this morning, Shaning? I'm looking at China because yesterday, Chinese President Xi Jinping, um, he had a little, I would say, like a webinar. <laughs> Shall we put it that way? Because he wasn't there personally. Uh, it was the BRICS Business Forum because it's a virtual forum. And basically, he has come out to say that uh, China will maintain their zero-tolerance approach to combating COVID-19. But yet, he is still expecting the economy to hit the 5.5% forecast. This is for China, the GDP growth for the year. And I think economists who do monitor China question China's ability to do so because of the constant opening and reclosing of the economy because of this zero-COVID policy. So something that that we're going to be watching. And I feel like BRICS also, what policy statements come up from there needs to be watched as well because, of course, they are the coalition of Brazil, Russia, India, uh, South Africa, um, China. <laughs> the sea yeah, is sea. China. Uh, but, the, the, but the point is they are sort of the counterpoint to the uh, Western world, if you, if you yeah. will. So it, these kind of competing interests and how they're going to play out geopolitically, uh, that's going to decide what happens moving forward. Um, if we, yeah. but, and we're going to find out a little bit more about the Chinese economy and even the Chinese stock market. Uh, what are the implications uh, for the equity markets? Because actually the CSI 300 has been one of the best performing markets in the last one month. So we're going to be talking to John Lau, who is a portfolio manager at Afin Huang. 
uh, Investment Management. Do tune in. That's going to be happening at 9.15. That's right. Um, turning our attention to other news. Now, this headline caught my eye this morning, and it has me scratching my head given the prevalence of gun violence in the U.S. But the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has decided on this landmark case regarding gun restrictions in New York, and they have struck down a New York law that restricts gun-carrying rights, uh, in, ev- in essence giving victory to those who support the Second Amendment um, and uh, the right to bear arms, right? right to bear arms, that's correct. Yeah, I, I, I scratch my head because in Malaysia, we, we never see guns except with the police or the army, right? It's, it's not available to, to private citizens that easily. You can have a license to own an arm, to have a gun, but there are not that many licenses issued. It's not like in America where you can roll up to a Walmart and buy a gun. It That's doesn't right. quite work that way. And I guess in the face of so many shooting incidents in schools, and harming in, the youngest in, in your population. Even in subways, you know, people get very nervous, apparently. Children talk about being very fearful to school. So I don't understand why this continues. But it's a very divisive um, topic in America. Now, very quickly, one last piece of news. If you're heading to the UK, guess what? Strikes are happening on the rail and on the tube. So apparently, the industrial strikes plunge commuters into chaos. This is reported in the Star. A lot to do actually with the fact that UK's inflation rate is at the all-time high, 9.1%. I think that was revealed yesterday. Highest in G7 countries. So a lot of uh, rail workers are saying, we're just not paid enough. But at the same time, if they actually give those wage increases, will that fuel further inflation? That is the concern everywhere. Everyone's looking to see how, whether inflation is going to spiral, wage push inflation, essentially. Um, something we'll be watching, 6.45 in the morning. We're heading into some messages. We'll take a look at what's making the headlines in our local newspapers and portals next. Stay as tuned, BFM 89.9. Tame Impala, solitude is bliss. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Wong Xiaoning, who obviously loves Tame Impala. She's doing a little jig to that song. A little jig isn't really what she's, you know, a little jig. That sounds so antiquated. But anyways. <laughs> it was barely a jig. Yeah, I do like Tame Impala. It is on my Spotify list. I think it's very cool beats. There you go. Anyways, it's time that we take a look at what's making the uh, front pages of our newspapers and online portals. What do you have in front of you, Shining? A little bit of bad news, but it is a good reminder for everyone who is entitled to have their second boosters. Please go and get it because Kari Jamaluddin has come out to say in the on basically in Malaysian Insight saying new COVID wave to occur earlier than expected. So it's going to hit the country in the next two to three months. This is based on the rise in daily infections, he added. But the country is prepared, adding that his statement uh, serves as a preventive measure to control the transition into the endemic phase. So it's a form of managing the expectations of the people, uh, indicating that, yes, they are seeing an increase in cases. I think he mentioned that for the past few days, they've Mm. seen 2,000 new cases, uh, for example. So he expects this number to um, go up as as these infections happen. But again, uh, it's also letting people know there's really no need to panic. Just make sure that we we, uh, practice still good uh, SOPs while we're out there. Yeah, and take those boosters. Uh, Another thing he added was that there are still no monkey pox cases reported in the country at the moment. Although there, I think there were cases in there was a case in Singapore. There was right? a case in Singapore confirmed. Yes, uh, so uh, that's the one that, as far as we know, for mm. now. Okay, um, we are. I'm also looking at the Malay Mail, and this is the HR Ministry. Apparently, employees can apply for flexible work arrangements when the Employment Act amendment comes into force on September first. Oh, that's interesting. 
How's this going to work? So you just, when an application is made, I'm reading from the papers, uh, the employer must give an answer to the employee in writing whether to agree or reject the application within 60 days and must give reasons why the application was rejected. I wonder whether this would open the floodgates of uh, floodgate of uh, applications. Interesting indeed. So in, in, in a way, that means that uh, Gov- uh, not governments, I'm sorry, businesses are obligated to consider mm. flexible working arrangements. Whether they actually allow it is another matter altogether. Yeah. But um, I'm, 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 I'm curious that the rhetoric is being made by the government on this. So they are encouraging uh, the possibility of flexible work arrangements, even if there, aren't, there isn't a framework as opposed to actually uh, implement it fully or somewhat. Yeah, the other thing is that the government is also still looking, currently looking uh, on a four-day week. Uh, the possibility of a four-day week. Interesting. A four-day week, which means a three-day weekend. Uh, I can't say that sounds like a bad idea. But of course, there are pros and cons. And whether mm. it can apply to all industries, it's always, yeah. it's very debatable. Um, For example, like us, we are on air five days a week. I mean, sometimes it's just, it's going to be a bit of a challenge, right? To, uh, if uh, It's also down to staffing issues. That's another thing to consider. Productivity is also another consideration. Cost to the company, of course, is another consideration. So I think there are many things, there are many moving parts. But I think that the conversation is there. It's not going to be taken away because COVID-19 has changed the nature of the work or changed the nature of work, how we work, how long we work, where we work. And there's no going back. It's like the genie is out of the bottle. And I think companies also need to evolve, right? They need to accept that employees want some flexibility. And if you want to maintain talent, this is what it is. And I do recall that there is a pilot project for a four-day work week that's being tested out in a number of countries. I think the UK is one of those involved. Um, They're trying it out for six months. Uh, I'd be curious to see what the results of that uh, experiment is and whether we'll see this being rolled out across the world, I guess, over the next few years. It's nothing definitely not going to happen overnight. But contra to that news is um, the Star Business reporting that holiday trading is a possibility. Bursa considering operating on sudden off days. Oh, no, no, Oh, you no, mean like those surprise no. days where, public holidays, you where know. we win a football match and then the next day is a public holiday. Is it those kinds of days? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, um, yes. So, i.e. Okay. if you work for Bursa, I mean, if you're related to equity markets or capital markets, Sorry, you might have to go back in because the markets are operating. Oh no, no more. Which su- applies to us because no more surprise we, days, day, day, days off. Yeah, because we are always on air as long as Bursa Malaysia is trading. So that's right. We take our guidance from Bursa Malaysia. Uh, so we'll be watching developments on this very closely. It's not a done deal, right? No, They're just no, considering, considering it. a possibility. A possibility. All right, we'll keep that in view then. 6.55 in the morning, we're heading into the 7 a.m. news bulletin. We'll check out how the global markets closed after that. Taking you to the news is Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton with Islands in the Stream, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.